Well, good morning, everybody. It's a pleasure to be gathered this Lord's Day. Uh, A very warm welcome in the Lord Jesus Christ to all who are visiting today, representing other congregations, Uh, especially that uh, from Redeemer Presbyterian and Elk Grove. We're thankful to have you all with us, glad to meet many new faces, and we look forward to our fellowship this Lord's Day. And as we continue this morning in our worship, I'd like to invite all of us, if you have a Bible, to take them and to turn with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 7. John chapter 7, as we continue our regular here at Bethany, our exposition through John's Gospel, we come to the end of chapter 7, and we want to focus this morning on verses 40 through 53. John 7, 40 through 53. Let's read and hear the Word of God together. John 7, beginning in verse 40. Therefore, many from the crowd, when they heard this saying, said, Truly, this is the prophet. Others said, This is the Christ. But some said, Will the Christ come out of Galilee? Has not the Scripture said that the Christ comes from the seed of David and from the town of Bethlehem, where David was? So there was a division among the people because of him. Now some of them wanted to take him, But no one laid hands on him. Then the officers came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, Why have you not brought him? The officers answered, No man ever spoke like this man. Then the Pharisees answered them, Are you also deceived? Have any of the rulers of the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, he who came to Jesus by night, being one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man before it hears him and knows what he is doing? They answered and said to him, Are you also from Galilee? Search and look, for no prophet has arisen out of Galilee. And everyone went to his own house. Amen. Let's unite our hearts. Let's pray for God's help, that He would come by the Spirit and be our teacher. Let's pray together. Father, we give You praise this morning for the Lord's Day. We thank You for the privilege that it is to enter into the gathering of Your people to worship the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Father, what glorious things we've sung We've read in Your Word of Your mysterious providence and how You keep Your promises to Your people. How even despite the sinfulness and the rebellion of Your people, You kept Your promise to send Your Son into this undeserving world to redeem for Himself and for Your glory a people for His eternal possession. Father, we thank You that we have Christ this morning as our prophet, priest, and king. We thank You that He reigns over us in grace and justice. That He cares for His people. 
We pray, Father, this morning that those who are suffering would especially take comfort in His kingly reign, His government of all things in heaven and on earth. We thank You, Father, this morning also that we have Him as our prophet, that He reveals God to us, that He reveals Your Word to us. Heaven and earth will pass away, but His words will never pass away. And we thank You, Father, that we stand upon the sure foundation of Your Word that You've delivered down to Your people. And we pray now that this morning as we consider the preaching of Your Word, that You would give all of us in this room attentive and eager and willing hearts to be taught from the Scriptures, to be changed by Your Spirit. We pray for Your Holy Spirit to come and to be our helper, to reveal Christ to us, to reveal the mysteries of the Christian life to us, that we would know how to emulate the example of our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we thank You for the gathering this morning. We thank You for Redeemer Presbyterian being with us. We pray Your blessing upon their congregation. Lord, may they be strengthened in Elk Grove and in their area, their region. We pray, use them for Your kingdom. Build them up in the most holy faith. And grant them to be instruments in Your hands to bring the Gospel to a lost and dying world. Draw near to us all now, we pray. Bless us. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we pick up this morning in the closing section of John chapter 7. And uh, for those of us who haven't been with us the last uh, several weeks, John 7 records our Lord's words and actions at the Feast of Tabernacles. Um, Attending this feast in Jerusalem, Jesus is now in the heart of Jewish opposition towards Himself. The leaders are already actively scheming to entrap him and to arrest him and to silence him. They are, the Pharisees and rulers, they are annoyed by the influence that he's having upon the common people. And so they've sought to arrest him and take him. And yet, nonetheless, our Lord does not fear their threats, but he has rather made himself known publicly and openly at this feast publicly proclaiming His doctrine and proclaiming it plainly and boldly to the common people. And excuse me. now, in this closing section, John, the Gospel writer, now records for us the effect of Jesus' presence at the feast. Namely, division. Verse 43 summarizes this passage. There was a division, literally there was a schism among the people because of Him. Everywhere you turn in this gathering, there is division. You have the crowds who are divided in their opinion on the identity of Christ. You have the Pharisees and even their own officers being at odds about His identity. And finally, you even have among the Pharisees themselves a division, with Nicodemus bravely coming to the defense of the Lord Jesus. And so let's turn this morning, in terms of our structure, 
Let's turn first of all to our exposition of the passage. That is, what is God saying here? What is he telling us? How should we understand the text? And then secondly, we will turn to doctrine deduced. And lastly, we'll turn to application. So first of all, exposition. And it's at this point, especially if you have a copy of the scriptures, if you would uh, have them open so that you can see for yourself what God is saying to his church. Let's begin in verse 40. Verse 40 says, Therefore, many from the crowd, when they heard this saying, that is, Jesus has just offered them the living water, the promise of the Spirit of God, the forgiveness of sins, many from the crowd, when they heard this saying, said, truly this is the prophet. And others said, this is the Christ. So John begins in his record here on a positive note. Many from the crowds look upon him with favor. Some say amongst themselves, this is the prophet whom God promised to Moses who was to come. Others went even further than that and they said, no, this is more than just the prophet. This is not a mere forerunner. This is the Christ. And while these evaluations are certainly more favorable than those that we'll see in just a moment, it doesn't seem that even those who look upon Christ favorably here, it doesn't seem that these are heartfelt confessions. We don't see any of this crowd leaving and forsaking everything and becoming his disciples. It again, as John has often indicated in his gospel, it seems to be another moment where they're caught up in temporary amusement, and yet they fall short of a genuine and lively faith in Christ. Picking up in verse 41, but some said, will the Christ come out of Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the seed of David and from the town of Bethlehem where David was? So you have those who are speaking positively, and then these are ready to speak against him. And still, if you remember from the whole previous chapter, still they are hiding behind this objection that they have come up with because of their prejudice against Christ. This crowd and these leaders all along has made assumptions about Christ without inquiring. And they take it for granted that this man hails from Galilee. And so they've reasoned to themselves, we know from the Scriptures that the Christ does not come from Galilee, and therefore this man cannot be the Christ. And by the way, who knows whether it was actually these crowds who came up with this objection. It was probably more likely the leaders who had put this into their mind to poison them against Christ. But either way, there's a couple problems with the conclusion they've drawn. Number one, they have failed to, to check their facts. Okay. If they would have inquired of Jesus, or of his mother, or of his disciples, or if they would have checked the registrar uh, at Bethlehem, they would have realized that Jesus is indeed descended from the seed of David, and he was born in Bethlehem, the city of, uh, where David was from. That's the first error, is they failed to inquire into their, their, what they believed to be facts. 
But secondly, they've made an interpretational error here of the Old, Test- uh, Old Testament. They know, whether this is their knowledge or it's been put into their minds from their leaders, they know that, or they know certain passages well enough. They know those that speak of the Christ coming from the seed of David, coming from Bethlehem, but they seem to be unaware or willfully suppressing other passages, like, for instance, Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, which associate the Messiah with the region of Galilee. You have both those things in the Old Testament. And so at first appearance, they seem to be those who are well-studied in the Scriptures. They seem to be grounded. And yet, upon further inspection, they really are only those who know those verses that conveniently support their own conclusion. And conveniently, they think, refutes Jesus. So verse 43 then. John summarizes, So there was a division, literally a schism, among the people because of him. And then 44, Now some of them wanted to take him, desired to take him, but no one laid hands on him. This is again very similar to what we saw uh, several weeks back in verse 30. That Jesus, while he's being threatened by the malice of evil men, He knows it is not His hour. His hour has not yet come for Him to give His life for a ransom for sinners. And therefore, men, even in their evil intentions and desires, are thwarted by the decree and the providence of God. And then verse 45, we change scenes a bit. We narrow. Um, First, John considers the crowds, and now he, he narrows it down. Then the officers, now remember in verse 32, the Pharisees had sent these officers to go and arrest Christ and to bring him to them. Then the officers came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, why have you not brought him? So picture the scene a bit. The chief priests and the rulers here, remember this is a feast of Israel, and this is the last great day, John has told us. But it seems that the the chief priests and the Pharisees and the rulers have excused themselves from the worship of God, apparently believing that they're better employed handling issues of government rather than being with the people to worship. And they are awaiting the return of these officers And when they see the officers have come, but they do not have him, they rebuke the officers, saying, why did you not bring him? Why have you failed on the errand that we sent you on? Verse 46, the officers answered, no man ever spoke like this man. Truer words have never been spoken. No man ever spoke like this man. And Christian, realize what an infuriating insult that would have been to the rulers that they're saying this to. Though these officers, we have no reason to think, at least at this point, that they're believing. We have no reason to think that they would be inclined 
to be biased towards Christ, and yet such is the speech and the preaching of the Lord Jesus Christ that they return and they say such is the wisdom and the boldness and the compelling nature of this man's speech, we have never heard it from any other man. We've never heard any such thing from any other person who has sat in Moses' seat. And how, like I said, how infuriating that must have been to the leaders here. And it's fascinating how God in His providence works. Not only do the common people, at least many of them, have sympathies with Christ, but God ordained that even the consciences of their own officers, those employed in their evil schemes, should be a witness against these evil rulers. And it's now at this point frustrated that the leaders begin to pull out every manipulation tactic they can muster. Upon hearing this from the officers, they don't take a step back in humility and think to themselves, maybe we should think again about what we are doing to this man. But rather, they double down and they resort to insult and threat in order to push their opinion. Verse 47. Then the Pharisees answered the officers, Are you also deceived? Now, notice, this is very important, notice they have no consideration for the facts here. Okay? They're not even dealing with, well, okay, they've got a point. This man does speak in a unique way. That They're not interested in reason at this point, they are interested in pushing their agenda at all, at all costs. And so they threaten this man, or, or these officers, essentially saying, if you guys also have sympathies with this man, you must be ignorant, dense, and deceived. And who wants to be those things, Right? More than that, they then, another tactic, they then pull the, the, whose side of this debate do you really want to land on? Verse 40, uh, 48. They ask him, obviously rhetorical, have any of the rulers or the Pharisees believed in him? That's a very ironic question, considering we're about to hear about Nicodemus. But they ask them, the officers, have any of the rulers or the, uh, the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd who does not know the law is accursed. And essentially, what they're saying with a heavy hand is we are the gatekeepers of true religion. We are the scholars. We are the students of the law. Do you guys, officers, really think that you somehow have seen something that all of us leaders have somehow missed and got wrong. Would you mere officers really be so arrogant as to think that you might know something that we have missed? Not only that, but are you going to throw your lot in with this crowd who does not know the law and is accursed? It's again very ironic considering the fact that many of them are entertaining the fact that this is the Christ. But these rulers in their frustration speak very disparagingly of this crowd. They take them to be ignorant. 
and they bully these officers, are you going to follow them? Is that really the side that you want to follow? And then the scene narrows even more. Nicodemus then shows his hand and he intervenes. And they give him the same treatment. Verse 50. John tells us, Nicodemus, he who came to Jesus by night, being one of them. So this is no longer a lowly officer. This is one of their peers. Said to them, does our law judge a man before it hears him and knows what he is doing? Nicodemus knows that what they are doing is not right. Nicodemus smells the political games here. And, you know, some people have criticized Nicodemus here, and you can read commentators, and they've got all sorts of opinions. Many, or I don't know about many, some want to criticize Nicodemus and say, you know, he didn't say as much as he could have said, or maybe should have said. And, you know, they argue he's kind of remaining a secret disciple here. But I tend to lean towards the side that rather than, what we're, rather than seeing compromise here, what we are seeing is courage and shrewdness on Nicodemus' part. Courage, think about it, in the sense that he speaks up. Okay? He just heard what, what a beating these officers had received. And yet he doesn't just sit silent, but he instead sticks his own neck out for Christ. That's courage. And he's shrewd in that he appeals to the very law they profess to uphold. If he had just come straight out and said something like he said to Jesus in chapter 3, and he, if he had just professed that he believes in these miracles, he believes everything the Lord Jesus has taught they probably would have dismissed Nicodemus just like they did the officers. And so he instead tactfully draws attention to these leaders' failure to follow their own law in hopes to curb their evil plots from the inside. And he asks them, does our law condemn a man before hearing him and knowing what he, what he is doing? That's a first principle of justice, and they knew it. And they are ignoring it. They know that they have not looked into this matter carefully. They have not given Christ ample opportunity to explain Himself. There's been no orderly investigation. They know that they're dealing in backroom type dealings, just like they will later this year when they actually do arrest Him. They are judging according to prejudice, according to appearance, not according to the justice of the law. And Nicodemus knows it and calls them on it. Which, not surprisingly, turns out to be a very costly statement for him. Verse 52. They answered and said to him, Are you also from Galilee? Once again, notice, not dealing with facts, are they? That's totally irrelevant from what Nicodemus has just said. They ignore his point about their disorderliness and their lawlessness, and instead they proceed to insults and character assassination. Matthew Henry says this. This is one of those Matthew Henry quotes where he, he just 
gets to the heart of it. He says, note, on this text, he says, note, it is a sign of a bad cause when men cannot bear to hear reason and consider it an affront to them when they are reminded of reason's maxims. And then he says, whoever are against reason give cause to suspect that reason is against them. That's exactly what's happening here. They say to him, not addressing his, his point, are you from Galilee too? Now, probably at least two things that they're meaning by this. Obviously, it's not a compliment. Number one, and I've said this before, the region of Galilee and being from Galilee had become basically synonymous with what we would call hillbillies. It's the land of people who've never read a book. They don't know anything. And so they insult his intelligence. Are you, are you from Galilee? How can you too be taken in by this? And just a note on that. Remember, these are supposed to be his friends. These are the men in leadership who are supposed to be a friend to their fellow leaders. And it's a, a, a lesson for us that when those who love power are cornered and they don't have truth on their side, they'll only be your friend as long as you tow the party line. And the moment you cross them, they turn on you. That's exactly what, what's happened to Nicodemus here. So that's the first thing they mean by that is they've insul- they're insulting his intelligence. But secondly, are you from Galilee is an accusation that Nicodemus is the one who's showing partiality to Christ. Obviously, it's rhetorical, but are you from his hometown? Is that why you're supporting him? Is that why you're defending him? And again, it's fascinating. They thus project on him the very sin that they're guilty of. They're actually the ones who are prejudiced against Christ for no reason. And when Nicodemus challenges them on that, they flip it on him and they now accuse him of being the one who's actually biased toward him. They say, search, they tell Nicodemus this, search and look. They're so confident. For no prophet has arisen out of Galilee. Now, that's not even a true statement. Jonah was from Galilee. Nahum is very likely from Galilee. They're resorting to statements that aren't even true just to dismiss this man. And then finally, verse 53, and everyone went to his own house. Kind of an abrupt ending. And it seems that Nicodemus' inconvenient truth and counsel very quickly broke up this meeting. And we're not told, but if I were a betting man, I would bet that they marked Nicodemus from this point on and that they decided we'll continue this discussion at a more convenient time when someone like Nicodemus who holds his position isn't present. That, that concludes our exposition of, of the text this morning. Let's move, uh, move in now, secondly, To our second heading, doctrine deduced. That is, doctrine that is drawn from what we've seen in this text. I want to open up three things this morning. All of them focus on 
the Christian life and lessons that we learn here as are related to the Christian life. And so my doctrinal points this, uh, this morning are more practical about understanding and learning the doctrine of the Christian life rather than more theological. Number one, I'll give them to you, to you as we go. Number one, we are instructed in this passage that divisions for the cause of truth are to be expected by the Christian and by the Christian church. Okay, so that's number one. We are instructed in this passage that division for the cause of truth is to be expected for the Christian and for the Christian church. Verse 43 summarizes, there was a schism among the people on account of him. It doesn't say that that is a bad thing. It doesn't lay the blame at Jesus' feet as though he's guilty of wrongdoing, but rather it simply states it as a fact that that is what happened after Jesus preached the truth and that by inference, Christian, that is what will happen to us. Now, before I open that up, I'll give a qualification. There is, listen, and probably some of us need to hear this, there is such a thing as bad and unnecessary division. Okay? And when we get to a text that's focused on that, we'll talk about that more. We shouldn't necessarily just automatically pat ourselves on the back because we're at odds with everyone in the whole world and just assume that's a guaranteed sign that we've been faithful. Right? A Christian, genuine Christian, can suffer and suffer division not for righteousness' sake, but simply because they're a contentious person. And that's not, that's not good. We need to avoid that. But that's not what this text is about. This text is about the inevitable division that comes from being a person committed to truth. And that's very instructive for us in our day. Because you all know it just as well as I do. You've probably got family members, extended family, friends who put this kind of pressure on you. There is a pressure in our day to so emphasize the Christian's duty to be a peacemaker and a unity seeker that the truth itself and conviction and backbone get sacrificed on the altar of always being at peace with everyone. But the Bible does not commend a peace that is at the expense of truth. This is why, for instance, just give you, I'll give you just a, a few examples of where we see this. This is why, for instance, we see today that so many churches have reduced their doctrinal statement to the absolute minimum. And this is why many pulpits refuse to preach or mention controversial moral issues of our day and... This is why the offense of the very cross of Christ, the centerpiece of the gospel, and sinners being dead in sin and at enmity with God by nature and a need for the supernatural rebirth, this is why that's not preached as it should be. 
Because those things offend and they divide the world. Not only that, they don't just offend the world, they also offend hypocrites who want the appearance of religiosity, but they don't want to have to embrace the cross that Jesus promised to those who would faithfully stand upon His Word. And, if you've ever met anyone like that, and I'm sure you have, anyone, people like us, who actually think there is such a thing as truth, and it's important to have convictions and that there actually are hills to fight on and die on at times, we are always viewed as what? The troublemaker. Right? You guys are just... You're the ones... If you just be quiet about that stuff, just leave it generic, everything would be fine. The family would be at peace, so on and so forth. Christian, don't, don't let that kind of judgment bother you when people think of you that way. Because Jesus, the same Jesus who said, Matthew 5, blessed are the peacemakers, also said, Matthew 10, 34, do not think that I came to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. And I have come to set a son against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Because Christian, it really boils down to as simple as this. Being a genuine Christian is to be committed to Christ unwaveringly and committed to His truth. That is not an optional part of being a Christian. Now, it's also not an easy part of the Christian life. In fact, it's one of the most difficult things, I think, often for the new believer as they begin, God renews their heart and they begin to follow Christ, they read His Word, they love it, they believe it, and all of a sudden, what happens? They start losing all the respect and the friendships that they once had when they were in the world. Some of you in this room know in a particular way because God has taught you how tr true Jesus' words are that He came to bring not peace but a sword. And yet, Christ, as our merciful high priest, comforts our hearts in all of our loss by telling us, Matthew chapter 5, when they persecute you, rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so they treated the prophets before you. And so, Christian, when you find that there is a division among the people because of you being faithful to the whole counsel of God, according to Jesus, it's not only to be, that's not only to be expected, but that's also an, in, an encouraging evidence that I'm actually the real deal by the grace of God. The professing Christian who has never once taken an unpopular stance for truth and for Christ, and has never experienced any level of division, but always just chooses the way of peace, has reason to examine themselves. Jesus says in Luke 6, 26, Woe to you 
when all men speak well of you. For so their fathers did to the false prophets. So that's the first doctrinal point, is that we're instructed regarding the fact that division for the cause of truth is to be expected by the Christian and the Christian church. Secondly, second point of doctrinal instruction, we are instructed in this passage of a real-life example of a saint's growth in grace. Okay? We're instructed in this passage of a real-life example of a saint's growth in grace, namely Nicodemus. I didn't say much about him. I want to open him up a bit here in this section. Nicodemus, some of you know this, not mentioned in any of the other Gospels. We only know what we know of him because of John. And Nicodemus makes three appearances in John's Gospel. We already saw the first one in chapter 3, when he's absolutely clueless about what's going on. No spiritual light bulbs whatsoever. We see him secondly here in John 7, in which he's, he's sticking his neck out now for the Lord Jesus. And we'll see him again in chapter 19, when he's helping Joseph of Arimathea give Jesus a proper burial. And here's what's significant. Every time John mentions Nicodemus, chapter 3, chapter 7, and chapter 19, every time he includes that detail that Nicodemus was the one who at first came to Jesus by night. Why? Why does John constantly draw our attention back to that? That Nicodemus at first came to Christ under the cloud of darkness. The reason is because John is noting for us a progression in Nicodemus. That what began as an outright fear to even be associated, associated with the Lord, by the grace of God, slowly transforms into a more and more bold allegiance to Christ. And you know, I mentioned some of the commentators People could talk down all they want and say, say things about Nicodemus that he didn't do as much as he could do. He didn't say as much as he could have said here in John 7. And honestly, maybe that's true. Maybe there's an element. However, Christian, here's the main point. Let us not despise the workings of grace, even in their small beginnings and with all of their weakness, as is evidenced by the fact here that Nicodemus is choosing to stand alone amongst his peers and against his peers to defend the reputation of Christ. That, to me, is an evidence of grace. Remember, it's not like he was forced to speak. It's not like when, when the Pharisees ripped into the officers, the officers deflected and say, hey, we're, we're just saying what we heard from Nicodemus, act him, uh, ask him. He, if he wanted to, he could have just left himself out of it. Let the officers take their beating and move on. And yet, on his own accord, he speaks and he takes an unpopular stand out of a conscience that I cannot remain silent. Christian, praise God for His grace when He takes fearful men who fear men and by His grace 
slowly but surely transforms them into men and women who boldly profess and stand for Christ. And not only praise God that God does that, praise God for that trajectory wherever someone is on it. I mean, Christians don't usually turn into the Apostle Paul overnight. It certainly took Peter some time. And we don't just outright, you know, belittle him and nothing Peter ever did was really faithful and he should have done better here. Okay, we could say that about everyone. That's true of me, that's true of you. But let's not use that as a way to eclipse the reality of grace here. And Christian, when we see timid believers who are fearful, and maybe you're that timid believer, when we see fearful and timid believers who you know are not, were not, and even still are not the type for conflict and controversy, when you see them pushing themselves by the grace of God out of their natural propensities to just stay silent, and you see them making a sincere effort to stand for Christ, we should rejoice and encourage that. Not just nitpick how they could have done better. You know, that was okay, but really, here's nine things where you could have been more faithful. I mean... Be that as it may, we, we all understand that. That might be true. There might legitimately be ways that, okay, yeah, they could have done better. But that's true of me, that's true of you. But instead of being that nitpicker, we need to be Barnabases, sons of encouragement who strengthen our brothers rather than just smash their sincere attempts. And... All of us need to take from Nicodemus the exhortation that we must never grow content with our present level of allegiance to Christ. Like him, we need to be, first of all, recognizing our fears and seeking the grace of God and Christ as our great high priest to give us the aid that we might become more and more bold as we stand firm as his disciples. That's the second doctrinal instruction. Third thing, and then we'll turn briefly to application. Third uh, doctrinal instruction. Thirdly and finally in this section, we are instructed slash warned here about the tactics of spiritual manipulation. Okay? We are instructed and warned about the tactics of spiritual manipulation. This is a negative example from the leaders here. We saw some of this at the beginning of chapter 7. I said we'd see a lot more when we get to the end. This is that section. These leaders, especially as John portrays them, this is a theme in John's gospel, these leaders are not sincere seekers of truth. They are proud men who love more than anything their position of authority... They're politicians, and therefore they resort to the vilest of methods to suppress their opposition to save their own skin. And brothers and sisters, there's nothing new under the sun. This has been true throughout the history of the church, and we need to be aware of it in our own own day, so that we, first of all, never 
become like this, but also so that we might identify these traits, especially when it comes to leadership in the church. And so what, what, are, what are signs that we see in this text? What are some signs given here that those who are in authority have abandoned reason and instead simply want to in, use intimidation to get their way? I've got four things, just briefly. These are four sub-points. They are brief that I want to bring out here. This is a case study in these leaders' uh, manipulation. Number one, notice how they belittle their opponent's intellect, education, and station. Remember, they didn't have a reasonable explanation for the officer's statement. And instead, or Nicodemus' challenge, and so instead they say things like, are you also deceived? This crowd who does not know the law is accursed. Right? So, apply that to today. Well, you know, you're talking to someone in authority who holds a different position than you do, and they say to you, well, are you really going to believe that? Because the only guys who believe what you're believing don't even have a Ph.D., or if, they, if you can pull out some guys who actually have some education who take your position, well, yeah, but that degree is from that school. <laughs> um, as though no one has ever thought an accurate or truthful thought if they aren't a graduate of a certain, hand, certain, a graduate of a certain handful of prestigious seminaries. Or how about within the church? Maybe you have an issue or a concern, not even an issue, just some questions. And someone in authority says to you something like, you're not even a pastor. There's no way you could understand the complex issues going on here. These lay people, if only they would know their Bible, then they would see things the way that we see it. Now, Christian, be aware of that. Those aren't arguments Those are intimidations. Secondly, notice how they appeal to their own authority. Verse 48. Have any of the rulers or the Pharisees believed in him? Once again, not an argument, just just, uh, an appeal to their own authority. Now, hear me out. I'll give a qualification here. Christian, If you are seeing things in the Bible that literally no one ever in the history of the church has ever seen something remotely close, you should tread carefully, okay? So I'm not just, I'm not saying it doesn't matter at all, you know, that there's such thing as authority that God's given in the church. But that's not the way they're using it. They're saying we are the gatekeepers of truth and we don't believe this, therefore it cannot be true. That is an overstepping of authority. Right? I'll pick on us. Well, have any of the well-known and beloved and published Reformed Baptists held that position? Oh. If they haven't held it, then certainly it should be rejected. Or again, let's say you have questions about something in the church or concerns. Well, have any of the leaders in the church shared that opinion or that concern? Who, who are you? 
to think that you might see something that all of your leaders haven't seen. It's this threat of authority of, we're the group, you need to stay in your lane, recognize your limitations, and don't be arrogant to think that you can actually maybe see something that we can't see. Thirdly, notice how they poisoned the well of their opponent's character and, and their associations. So with Nicodemus, are you from Galilee too? This is one thing. I mean, all of these are applicable. I don't know how many of you are on social media. Well, I know my people, I know how many of you are on social media because I secretly follow everyone, even though I don't post anything. Um, But if only the keyboard warriors would realize how much at times they sound exactly like the religious leaders here. (laughs) You believe that? Thomas Aquinas believed that. And we know he's a Roman Catholic, so must, must be wrong, right? That's a tactic, right? Associate it with something bad, right? That's, po- that's what poisoning the well is. Um, I, I've mentioned, I'd mentioned Doug Wilson at the beginning of chapter 7. Look, the guy has faults just like anyone else, but I also think that he becomes the punching bag unfairly for things he doesn't even believe, and he's almost become a byword where people will just say, you sound like Doug Wilson. You must be Federal Vision. You must be all these things. And here's the thing. Just because I might have something in common with a Roman Catholic, have, have the Catholics never had anything right? That's a problem if they haven't. We need to jettison a lot of stuff if they haven't. The same thing is true of anybody. But here's what manipulators, abusers do, is they, they just throw it out. You sound like these bad people who we know are bad people. And even though that's not an argument, what does everyone else do? I don't want to be a part of that. <laughs> that's poisoning the well. Are you from Galilee? Come on. Do you want to be from there? We can say that about whole different groups of people too. Number four. Lastly, they silence their opposition. This is actually their main tactic. Not only had they not given Jesus a fair hearing, that's exactly how they wanted it to stay. They don't want to give this Galilean Galilean an opportunity to actually explain himself in front of the people, lest they might feel that the compelling nature of his preaching and his teaching, they don't want that. They just want arrest the man, put a gag order on him, and persecute anyone who has sympathies with him. Right? This is the book-burning method. Right? Um, let's just make him disappear, get rid of the books, get rid of his preaching, and the problem will go away. Brothers and sisters, any time it seems like, if there's a debate, any time it seems like one side is doing all they can to keep the other side from actually getting a fair hearing, it's almost always a sure sign that they know their sign doesn't stand up to scrutiny. Because the truth isn't afraid of error. I mean, you think about it. They've already said, this, this crowd is so ignorant, you'd be so foolish to believe them. Well, if that's true and they're as ignorant as you say they are, then it should be really easy to dismiss Jesus' case 
why don't you just let him speak so that you can so easily refute it as you say you can? But instead, they just want to silence him, keep anyone from hearing him. Now, that brings us to our application. And I'm, I'm more brief here, so we will be finished shortly. Let's turn from doctrine deduced to our application. And I want to just give us exhortations from each of these doctrinal points we've seen in the text this morning. Okay? So my application follows our, our doctrinal points. Number one, Christian, I want to encourage you in this, especially those who perhaps you're in a season where you do feel very beat down by opposition and division. Christian, don't be afraid of the division and the opposition that comes from being faithful to Christ. I'm not saying it's easy. I know it hurts. There's tears involved. But nonetheless, don't fear it and don't resent God for it. Hebrews 12.2 For the joy that was set before Him, He endured the cross, despising its shame, and has sat down now at the right hand of the throne of God. And Christian, here's the reality. Jesus tells us if they treated the master of the house this way, how will they treat His servants? Christian, this is an aspect of the cross we bear in this life. Heaven is coming and will make amends for everything, but it is not here. Rejection, turmoil, always being the one who's bringing that dividing sort of truth into situations and relationships. Christian, we need to be those who speak for Christ boldly regardless of the cost and regardless of what the outcome that God may bring from that. Now hear me. I'm not talking about being bombastic and contentious and speaking rudely just for the sake of I want everyone to be enemies with me. That's, that's a bad sign, by the way, if you're looking to be hated by everyone. That should just happen naturally. <laughs> you shouldn't need more help than simply being faithful to the truth. So it's probably something to look at if that's the case with you. But rather, and and, and not because we love to see people polarized, but Christian, with love in our hearts and tenderness in our speech, we are to bring the gospel and the whole counsel of God to people because we love souls and we want to see them sanctified in the truth. And we entrust the result of that to the sovereign good pleasure of God. Christian, you, this is, I know, hard. It's easier said than done. But Christian, theologically, this is true. You are not held responsible by God for what other people do with the truth that you bring to them. You are called to bring the truth. You are called, you're called to implore people to heed the truth. And you're called to pray that God would, in His grace, open the eyes of their hearts so that they would believe the truth for what it really is, the Word of God. But we must not despair or become overcome with guilt when men do not receive it. Tears, yes. Grief, heartache, yes. 
Our Lord was more than anyone well acquainted with that. Despised and rejected is his title given in Isaiah 53. Christian, take comfort in the grace of sharing in the sufferings of Christ. That's what's happening when people distance from you because you're faithful. You are co-sharing in the sufferings of Christ with Christ. And he gives grace to his people to do that. And so, Christian, go to the Father often in prayer. That's what our Lord often stole away to pray for seasons. Part of that was to keep him in his humanity himself from um, despair. And he's getting away to be with God for comfort and to find strength. And so, go to God often for grace and strength to speak the word with boldness. Second thing, related to the first, seek God for his grace to grow in your boldness. Okay, seek God for his grace to grow in your boldness for Christ. Make Nicodemus an example to be imitated here. Christian, honestly, I'm asking, I've already asked this question to myself. And honestly, it's a hard question to answer because I think all of us know to a degree the answer is not good. But Christian, as you've grown in maturity and in age as a Christian, have you found yourself less bold than you were at first? Now, for some of you, that may not be true at all. And by the grace of God, you think, no, I'm actually way more bold today than I was. But for others of you, there is a danger that as we grow, quote-unquote, smarter and wiser, and you know what I mean by that, we, we become too smart for our own good, and we begin to use wisdom as a cover-up for compromise, right? Everything all of a sudden becomes a wisdom issue. Well, probably wouldn't be wise to say that at the family gathering. I'm just being wise. That's why I'm silent. I think many of us, if we're honest, we look back on our younger days, and yes, to be fair, there are good things about maturity, because as you look back on your younger days, you probably also remember there were really things that I botched, and I didn't do well, and yet nonetheless, you realize, but I have lost some of that zeal, and if we're honest before God, we realize I actually have, maybe without even realizing, I've grown afraid. I didn't realize it was fear. I just called it wisdom. Or I've grown tired. It's tiring constantly having ceaseless drama because I'm for Christ and my family's not and the world around me is not. And perhaps we've grown more comfortable in just letting relationships lay where they lay. Just don't disturb it. Leave it. Christian, I would encourage you, from Nicodemus' example, pray to God this afternoon, this evening, pray to God to give you wisdom and insight into that. I get it that relationships are very complex. And I realize there is such a thing as a time to give someone space so that I don't just, you know, totally cut off the relationship for the sake of having future opportunities. I, I understand that. 
And yet, at the same time, Christian, the sands of time are sinking. And that hourglass of our life is never ceasing to get lower and lower. And souls are perishing. Let us seek for wisdom and God's strengthening grace to remember and to be okay with the fact I've been crucified to this world and this world to me. This world is not my home. I have one life God has given me. It will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Let's pray. I don't just mean now. We've got one more point. But let's give ourselves to prayer. To ask God to shine light from His Word into our own lives to evaluate. To take inventory of where we are on, our spe- on the spectrum of boldness to Christ. Thirdly, last thing. Last, last thing, Christian, just related to our third point, uh, a doctrinal point. Let us be aware of and shun ungodly tactics of manipulation. Okay? We owe that, first of all, to the glory of, for the glory of God, but we owe that to both fellow church members and to the world. Christians are to be people committed to the truth and reason. 2 Corinthians 4.2, Paul says, We have renounced the hidden things of shame, not walking in craftiness nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. Christian, the word of God is able to defend itself. It does not need, and indeed it is hindered when we think it needs the help of ungodly manipulation to somehow win its case for it. Both, and I, I'm, I'm thinking, both within the church, right? Even within good brothers and sisters, we have intramural debates, things that don't divide us, but nonetheless, they're disagreements. And outside the church, to the world, or with from the church towards the world in our apologetics. We need to deal fairly with our opponents and not just get you know, our pride hurt because oh, they asked a question that I didn't know the answer to and so now I'm just going to bully them. <laughs> That's not the way of, of truth. Rather, when that happens, we humble ourselves and we let it send us into deeper study of God's Word, believing God's Word is true, right? Martin Luther, God's truth abideth still. That doesn't change just because maybe I misinterpreted part of it. But let us not become like these men who resort to these kinds of things to silence others because of our own pride. We don't have anything to fear. Let us walk in humility and sincerity as we grow together in our understanding of God and His Word. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that you'd write your word upon our hearts. We ask that you'd be gracious to us, conform us to the image of Christ. Father, as we think of these leaders, we thank you that you delivered us from being blind. That we, in varying different ways, we had 
so many ways that we employed to close our ears to the truth, thinking that we actually had reason on our side when in reality we knew that we had no compelling reason to reject Christ and the truth of your word. Thank you for opening our eyes, for by your, by your spirit giving us new hearts that love your word and submit to it. Father, your word is everything. We pray that you would sanctify us in the truth. Pray for all of our people. Grow us in in Christ. Grow us in grace. Grow us in our Christian life and in our life together in the church. Help us to be more spiritually useful in each other's lives, to be encouragers. Lord, deliver us from a spirit that fails to recognize even the small beginnings of your grace in one another's lives. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for our gathering today. We pray that you would now bless our our meal together, our time of fellowship. Pray that you would use today to, to forge the beginnings of new friendships, new relationships in the Lord, and that we would rejoice in our unity together, our love for the truth. Strengthen our our friendships, we pray. Bless our conversation. We pray that you'd also, again, draw near to us this afternoon as we enter into our afternoon service. Be the help of your people. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Let's.